All right, open up to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. I took some time this week. Should have done this a month or two ago, but I took some time to lay out the rest of the series so that we could stop. I'm hoping to finish up Matthew kind of at the end of the summer. And I realized very quickly, I need to pick up the pace. So that's what we're going to do. Matthew chapter 20, we're going to be in verses 29 all the way through chapter 21, verse 22. And this is actually one of the shorter passages we'll be studying in the remaining sermons. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. I want you to imagine coming up in a city and and there's a space, maybe a park or a square, and it opens up. And you see a crowd of people gathered, and they're all looking in the same direction. And they're craning their necks like this. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And you walk up there and you're going to have some questions. What is happening? What are they all looking at? Is is there a, a show going on? Is there someone hurt up there? What is going on? Now imagine you get to a place, maybe you crawl up on a park bench or, or you, you know, you do the Zacchaeus thing and climb a tree and you look and there's a guy in the middle of the crowd and he's talking. Well, now, now you know what's happening to some degree, but I think you would have another question. Who is this? Who, who is this guy that so many people have stopped and are listening to? Who is this? Today we're looking at a rather famous passage. We usually look at this passage or talk about this passage the week before Easter. It's the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Jesus coming as the messianic king, the king Messiah to the Jewish people, entering triumphantly into Jerusalem. And in the middle of that important scene, the crowd there in Jerusalem asks this question, who is this? I'm going to suggest to you that your answer to that question, who is this, who is Jesus, is the single most important thing about you. Our answer to the question, who is Jesus, is the most important thing about us. We're going to start as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. So we'll start in verse 29. And go down through verse 34. It's kind of a scene before he enters Jerusalem proper. You can follow along in your Bibles if you wish. I'll put it up here on the screen too. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called to them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. We're looking at this question, who is Jesus? And here in this passage, we see that Jesus is the king who shows mercy. Think about it. Do you ever get in one of those modes where you're busy and and you're focused because you're very busy and what you're doing is very important? You don't have time for other things because you're very busy and very important. 
I think that certainly applies to Jesus. He's very busy. He's going to Jerusalem. All sorts of things are going to happen over the next week. He's going to be challenged. He's going to teach. He's going to be doing miracles. But he knows at the end of that week, he's going to be put on a cross. Talk about important. Crowds are with him. And they're on their way to Jerusalem. There's this sense of anticipation and excitement in the air. And these two guys are like, hey, can we hit the pause button just for us? Understand the crowd that is following Jesus. They have seen him do, many of them, multiple miracles. If they haven't been there when he did these miracles, they certainly would have heard about it. He traveled all over Israel and even into the surrounding countrysides. Word about him has spread. The other thing that's interesting, and Matthew kind of skips over this, I think because he's, he's on his way to the cross, but John tells us that shortly before this scene here, Jesus went to his friend's house, Lazarus, who had just died. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now think, this crowd has all this in their minds. This guy is a teacher like no one we've ever heard. He has done miracles like nothing we've ever seen. He even raised Lazarus from the dead. And he's going to Jerusalem, the capital, central city of Israel, the center of Jewish religious life, the center where the king was supposed to appear and take his throne. Something big is going to happen. And these two blind men have the audacity to say, can you pause for a second, Jesus? The crowd rebukes them. Reminds me of a little earlier when little children were being brought to Jesus and the disciples rebuked them. Here it's the crowd. We don't have time for this. But verse 34 says, Jesus had compassion on them. And he heals these men, as important as his mission is, along the way he stops and shows mercy, he heals them. And I love their response. They follow him. I want us to look at how these two blind men answer the question, who is Jesus? Look at how they refer to Jesus in this passage. They say it twice, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Don't miss the irony here. Who truly sees who Jesus is? the blind men. That's very intentional. The crowds think they know. We're going to see later they have no clue. These blind men see a lot more than the people around them who can fully see. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. That word Lord in the New Testament is sometimes tough because it can mean sir, kind of a title, usually of somebody really important. Can mean that can also mean master. If it was a servant, they, they might call their master Lord. But it can also mean God. And so it's tough sometimes to know, are these men proclaiming that this is God? But then they use this, the son of David. And there is no mistake what that is. That was the title of the promised Messiah that God promised the Israelite people in the Old Testament when they were trapped and enslaved and oppressed. And God said, I will send one from David's lineage, the son of David, who will rescue you. Isaiah chapter 35 Verses 5 through 6 talks about this messianic hope. It says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Do you see what's going on here? 
Jesus is saying, hey guys, don't miss who I am. And the blind men who couldn't see understand exactly who Jesus is. And so Jesus heals them. And I want you to hear before we move on, we have a king who shows mercy. I hear all the time people that say, oh, if you you knew me, if you knew my background, you would know that God couldn't really love me. If you knew the things I've done or the things I've thought, God can't really love me. And I love this passage. He shows them mercy. People that everyone else just wanted to walk on by. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the king who shows mercy. In the next passage now, as he enters Jerusalem, we see he is also the king who saves. Now again, let's set the scene, because this is a tension-filled environment. Jesus is walking to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. The Passover was arguably the most significant of all the Jewish uh, holidays, the Jewish traditions, and the Jewish feasts. The Passover was the celebration of when God saved his people. When they were trapped in Egypt, he rescues them, delivers them, saves them out of Egypt. And they remember that night. They tell their families about that night. They do a meal that remembers that night, much like we're about later on to celebrate communion together. They remembered God saved us on that night so long ago. And it's around that time that Jesus is walking into Jerusalem as Passover is on the hearts and minds of the crowd. There's a large crowd coming with Jesus, walking up to Jerusalem. This is the crowd of pilgrims, uh, people that are traveling to go into Jerusalem for the Passover. History records the the population of Jerusalem. It's kind of tough to pin down, but maybe between 50 and 80,000. It's kind of tough to know. But they say during the Passover, it swelled to over 250,000 people or more. That's how important this was. The city is busting at the seams. And Jesus is coming in with a crowd of these people. And they have seen what he's done. They just witnessed him healing these blind men. There's also in the city a large crowd waiting. Waiting for the Passover. Maybe some of them are waiting for Jesus to show up. Wondering what's going to go on. Word about Jesus has spread. What's interesting, though, is that it seems like the crowd traveling with Jesus shows this great anticipation and excitement, and the crowd that is in Jerusalem seems to be a bit more skeptical. The truth is, Jesus didn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem. He showed up occasionally. He did some miracles there. He's done some teaching, but most of it has been outside which I think was really offensive to those in Jerusalem because they thought they were so much more important than everybody else. We're in Jerusalem. Who does this guy think he is? So let's look at Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Starting 1 through 3 here. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter, or say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is this? It's interesting, the Gospels are very clear that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, which seems a bit surprising to us, but there was a bit of a a cultural tradition in their time that when a king came into a city on a donkey, he was coming in peace. If a king came into a city on a horse, he was coming to conquer which is really interesting because if you fast forward in Scripture, in the book of Revelation, in the second coming, Jesus does not come on a donkey. He comes on a horse because he is coming to conquer. But here he's coming to bring peace. He's coming to bring peace. And Matthew quotes out of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And the context in this chapter is that the prophet Zechariah is proclaiming God's judgment on those that oppress Israel. A little bit of history lesson at the time of Jesus. The Jewish people are not truly in control of their own land. The Romans possess the land of Israel. In a moment, I'm going to show you a a picture of the temple, and I think in this picture you'll see right next to the temple, just high enough to look over the wall of the temple, the Romans built a fort, a fortress, so they could keep an eye on the Jewish people. The Jewish people lived under the oppressive hands of the Roman Empire. And so all of these ideas of the Lord changing things and rescuing them and overcoming these foreigners and these oppressors. All of this is their hope for the Messiah to come and defeat the Romans, to conquer. And yet Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. But don't miss the importance that they would not have missed. He is entering as a king. Look at the crowd's response. They shout, Hosanna, to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. That word, Hosanna, is really important here. It literally means, in in its sort of root forms, he saves. Well, actually, it means save us. It's a cry. Save us. We're in trouble. We need help. Save us. But then it became used as you are the one who will save us. And so in this instance, when they're crying out Hosanna to Jesus, they are declaring, we believe you are the one who will save us. And again, they say, son of David, the one who was promised by God to rescue them. And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is a quote from Psalm 118. I want to give you a little background here because this was so helpful. The context is, is the psalmist here, presumably David, although it doesn't say. It's either David writing about himself or someone writing about him, I believe. But he's gone through great difficult time, other nations coming against the nation of Israel. And God has rescued them. Do you see the themes? God has rescued them and given them victory. 
But David looks forward, or the psalmist rather, looks forward to another time that God will rescue his people when the Messiah comes. And he specifically talks about this stone that the builders have rejected will become the capstone or the cornerstone. And Jesus is going to quote that same passage just later on in this chapter in Matthew. So all of this is in their minds. And at the end of Psalm 118, it says this, You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. This crowd is saying much more, I think, than they understand. They are using something from the Old Testament that should have only be used for God. And they're saying this to Jesus, their king who has come to save them. Yet when they're asked, who is this? Look at how the crowd responds, this traveling with Jesus. They say he is a prophet from Nazareth. Oh, friends, they're so close. But see, a prophet, there were lots of prophets. And they were great and they were honored and they spoke the word of God and they came as a messenger from God to declare God's word to his people. It was a big deal to be a prophet. It was a wonderful thing in the work of God to use prophets. But Jesus is not just a prophet. They're so close. And I think sometimes in our faith we get so close. Well, Jesus was a great example. Yes, but not quite enough. Well, he was a great teacher. Yes, but you got to go a little further. Well, I think he's one of many great religious leaders. Well, now we've got a problem. Because he's not just one among many. Jesus was not just a great prophet. He is their conquering king, the one who has come to save them. Jesus moves through this crowd. And we're told that the city is stirred in verse 10. Something big is going on. And that will build and build and build in a crescendo through the rest of this week until we come to Jesus being nailed to a Roman cross. Jesus moves through this crowd and he goes to the temple, which makes sense. A religious leader, a prophet, a teacher, even the Messiah would go to the temple. And let's look at what he does there. Matthew chapter 21 verses 12 through 17 tells us he starts turning the tables upside down. Let me help us to understand what's going on here. This is a rendering that someone has done of the temple in Jesus' day. Now some parts are a little small, but I think this shows the best. Uh, this here, I don't know if you can see the laser, but I get to use the laser. That's cool. Um, this here is the temple building proper. So inside there are two rooms. One is called the holy place. That's where the priests would go in and out every day. The innermost room was called the most holy place. Only the high priest, only on the, uh, the day of atonement could go into there. And in the most holy place within this building is where the Shekinah glory, the, the manifest display of the God, glory of God would dwell. It was God's presence with his people. Now, if we exit the temple proper, we come into this area here. This is where it's hard to see. There's a little courtyard around here. This is where the Jewish men could go. And it was in that courtyard that they would bring their sacrifices. 
women, you couldn't go there. You weren't allowed. This here is called the court of women. That's as far as Jewish women could go. This here, all around here and all around here, is the court of Gentiles. If you were not Jewish, didn't matter how sincere you were, that was as close as you could get to God. That's where you would come to worship. Now, the important part about this, other than just a cool historical lesson, is that this court of Gentiles out here is where this scene is taking place. It was a place designed for the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, to come and worship the one true God. And yet, the people in Jerusalem have filled it up with merchants and stalls and money changers. It has become a marketplace rather than a place of worship. Let's pick up the reading in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. See, when you went to the temple to worship, they didn't want pagan money. They didn't want Roman coins. So you would have to go and exchange your money for Jewish money. And then you could give that to the temple. And so the religious leaders, they were so helpful, they decided we'll set up a place right here where you can change your coin for a moderate fee. And so they were extorting money from people that had traveled to Jerusalem to worship. They also very helpfully sold doves. And this kind of makes sense if you've traveled from a long way. It's, it's a bit difficult, I imagine. I've never tried this myself. But it's a bit difficult to travel a long way with your sacrificial animal. And so you would just bring money and buy the animal there for a moderate fee and a tax that all went to the temple. And all of this was going on in a place that was supposedly set aside so that the Gentiles could come and worship. And Jesus goes over and grabs the tables and flips them over. And money scatters around the court. And he grabs the cages of the doves and he throws them open. Now imagine the question in the leader's mind. Who does this guy think he is? He acts like he's in charge of the temple. Yes, he is. That's exactly what he's doing. He is the king of the temple. Everything going on in that temple is about Jesus Christ. And they're missing it. Look at verses 14 through 15. He says, The blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They are mad. Who does this guy think he is? This is such a beautiful passage that's easy to miss. You see, in Jesus' time, as far as I can understand, a tradition had developed. I do not believe it's in the Old Testament. It's not from God. But a tradition had developed that anyone who was blind or lame was not allowed in the temple. You couldn't come in. But there's Jesus, and the blind and the lame know he's in there, and they're coming in to be healed. 
That's one of the reasons that the religious leaders were indignant. Who does this guy think he is welcoming these people into the temple? And I can almost imagine Jesus just saying, no, no, it's okay. They're allowed to be, be here. See, they're not blind and lame anymore. It's fine, guys. Calm down. He heals them and makes it possible for them to worship God right there in the temple. What a beautiful picture. But then they also have this question about these children. Verse 16, do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? Let me just say, that was a great insult to the religious leaders. Have you never read? Oh yeah, they read. They memorized. They studied. They wrote novels on each of these individual verses. Have you never read? It's like Jesus saying, don't you get it? Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. These children are calling out, just like the crowds, Hosanna to the son of David. Calling out, he saves. Now, this is a messianic promise, but they didn't really understand that God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus God in the flesh, would come to save them. So even that idea of calling out, this is the messianic king, they could have just thought this is a human being, really important, who's come to save us. But look at what Jesus does. He quotes from Psalm 8, which starts, the whole context of the psalm is, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you remember earlier where I said in, in the New Testament times in Greek, it's kind of tough to know exactly what was meant by Lord. The Hebrew has no such problem whatsoever. The word there is Yahweh. It is literally a name that the Jewish people found too holy to pronounce because it was the name of the one true God. And in Psalm 8, it is using that and worshiping the one true God. And Jesus grabs that text and he says, these children are doing this to me. They are worshiping me as Yahweh, the one true God. Who is this? He is the authority over the temple. He is the king of the blind and the lame. He is the king worthy to be worshipped. He is the very presence of God. Jesus is also the king of the faithful. This next section, rather, I, I, I struggle to know if we should cover it now or next week. It forms a bit of a transition, so I'll probably mention it again next week. It's an interesting little account about a fig tree. Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. I think of those Snickers commercials, right? Where somebody gets upset. And they just kind of go off. Is that what's going on here? Is the son of, son of God just a little hangry here and, and he really needs his snack? No, that's not what's going on. Mark actually tells us in his gospel that it was not the time for figs. It wasn't fig season. Which doesn't really help because it's like, Jesus, why, why are you so mad at the fig tree if it's not even the time for figs? Well, certain trees, I'm no farmer or I don't know what you call people that take care of fig trees. I uh, See, I don't even know what it's called. But I do know this, 
that figs could come in other seasons as well. Some trees would bud a little bit earlier, some a little bit later. But here's what is universal. The leaves would come with the fruit. So if you saw a tree with leaves on it, that would mean that that tree had begun to produce fruit. And so when it says Jesus found nothing but leaves, it tells us something. He was expecting fruit. It looked like it should have fruit. It's on display for the world to see. Look at me. I've got fruit. Aren't I great? I'm doing what I should as a fig tree. And Jesus shows up and there's no fruit. And he curses the tree. Understand, this is not actually about the poor fig tree. Jesus has gone to the center of religious life in the Jewish world. And what he has found there is instead of true worship of God, he's found a marketplace. Instead of true worshipers, he's found people squabbling over authority and complaining all the time. They had leaves. They looked like good religious people. But there was no faith in their hearts. This needs to cause us to take pause and ask ourselves, are we like that? Lots of leaves, little fruit. The disciples see this and they understandably have some questions. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? I'm a little amazed at their question at this point. Lazarus rose from the dead. Fig tree's really no big deal at this point, I'm thinking. They're a little slow. How did it happen so quickly? And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach them about faith. He uses hyperbole, which was a common Jewish rabbi technique. Hyperbole is an exaggeration to make a point. He says, you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and it will be done. Please don't name and claim this verse, okay? Jesus is not saying literally walk up to a mountain and say, oh God, I'd like this mountain to be thrown in the sea and it will happen. His point is, If we truly trust in the one true God, if our faith is truly in him and our greatest desire is his glory and we are praying according to his word and his will, those are prayers that God answers. He says in verse 22, if you believe, then you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. See, the problem that the fig tree points out is that the people in Jerusalem did not believe. They didn't have faith. They had a lot of leaves, a lot of actions, a lot of religious rituals, but they had lost faith in the one true God. So who is this? He is the king who judges. We don't like to talk about that today. Jesus knows our hearts. He sees through the leaves in our life. He knows what's truly going on. And he has the right to judge. He is also the king that is worthy of our faith. To trust in him completely, to follow him. I I just love these blind men that get healed and they get up and they follow Jesus. Where is he going? I don't know, but I'm following him. Wherever he goes, I go. Oh, that we would have that kind of faith today. So let me ask you this. Who is this? Who is Jesus? What's your answer? We need to make sure that we are looking in the right place for that answer. 
you know, our personal preferences and our desires. We like to take Jesus and change him and kind of round over the rough edges and make him a little bit sweeter and a little dumbed down. And that's a Jesus we can connect with and he makes us feel good. But who is Jesus really? Are we going to the word of God for that answer? Are we willing to hold up popular ideas and opinions and weigh them against the word of God? Or are we going to try to make Jesus who we want him to be? You see, it's interesting. This crowd was so excited about Jesus. He's there and he's come in and they're all having a party and they're laying down their palm branches and they're declaring that he is the Messiah. And a few days later, many of the same people will stand around. And when Pilate asks, should I give Jesus back to you or this other criminal? And Pilate says, what should I do about Jesus? The same crowd will shout, crucify him. Because Jesus didn't meet their expectations. We need to come to scripture to answer the question, who is Jesus? And when we do, we see that Jesus is the king who shows mercy. Jesus is the king who saves. Jesus is the king of the temple, the very presence of God. And Jesus is the king of of the faithful. What's your answer to that question? Who is Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, may we understand the enormity of that question. Who is Jesus? May we be willing to push back our own preconceived ideas, to push through the the things that our culture puts on religion and on Jesus, even religious traditions. May we push through those things like someone going through a crowd to say, I want to see him for real. I want to know who he truly is. And Father, when we come to your word and we we read your very words to us, that Jesus is our king, the one who came to save us by dying in our place on the cross, may we say, yes, that's my Jesus. That's the true Jesus, the son of God. And God, I pray if there's anyone here who would not or cannot answer that question, that Jesus is their savior. Or if they wouldn't answer in that way, may you challenge them this morning. May you comfort them this morning. May you turn their eyes to who Jesus truly is, their Lord, their Savior, their King. May today be the day that they accept that incredible truth of who Jesus truly is. And then I pray like the blind men who have been healed, that we who are sinners that are saved by Jesus Christ would also get up and follow wherever Jesus leads. We pray this in the powerful name of our King Jesus. Amen.